The following is a conversation with Mr. John Greenwald from the Black Vault. Now, let me just say first and foremost that I am extremely grateful for Mr. Greenwald spending even more than a minute to sit down with us, let me say first and foremost, mainly because we had, in my humble opinion, one of the most significant data-driven discussions that at least I've ever had the, the gracious opportunity of having. Now, let me prerequisite this, or yes, let me prerequisite this conversation, or this interview rather, with saying that there is a point in the episode, particularly near the end, roughly around the hour and a half mark in which you may notice a significant sudden jump in uh, in, in cutscenes, if you will. That is because, and I want to be as completely transparent with you folks as possible, in the moment, my uh, let's just say my computer was penetrated in real time during the conversation. I would like to thank our great friend uh, and researcher and many other things, uh, Riel, for continuing the final minutes of the conversation. I apologize to the Patreon members. I could not ask your questions myself. However, Riel did. Now, with that being said, let me be very clear. I'm not trying to attract or garner any attention to myself in this way or in this aspect. I am simply bringing it up to be as transparent with the audience as possible, but also to say that I am not the only channel going through this. With that being said, patreon.com slash generation Z is the backbone in which you can help fund this channel to A, continue having conversations such as these, B, to continue... I guess you could say the show ultimately and to allow me to, if you will, uh, I guess you could say obtain some costly but necessary protection mechanisms against certain things in which are currently occurring to me at the moment. But let me be very clear. I'm sure it's happening to many others out there as well. I'm not trying to seek attention in any way, shape or form. At the same time, let me say as well that by signing up for the Patreon, you also get, I'm pretty safe, uh, confident in saying at the moment, hundreds if not thousands of extra hours for both advanced and basic levels of individuals looking into the phenomenon, whether it has to do with UFOs, whether it has to do with the paranormal, or anything of the sort, the spiritual, the nuts and bolts, intelligence operations. I can say with the utmost confidence and gratefulness, we have many different individuals that come on the Patreon on a weekly basis in which give lectures, uh, interviews, break down science, the occult, many different things like this. Without further ado, folks, again, I would like to thank you so, so very kindly to each and every one of you, even those that do not support the show uh, in a financial sense, for everything. I would not be here without any of you folks. So without further ado, thank you so very kindly from the bottom of my heart, and please, please enjoy this interview. Cheers. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon or good evening, everybody. I am extremely humbled, honored, grateful that Mr. John Greenwald from the Black Vault and the BlackVault.com is here with us today. And of course, we have, you know, our partner, great friend of the show, Riel. First and foremost, sir, how are you doing? And how's everything been pertaining to, I guess you could say, the, um, the long wait times that you've had to go through as you've publicly documented pertaining to uh, very specific FOIA requests? Well, I appreciate that. And thanks for, for welcoming me onto the show. It's good to be here. Uh, you know, things are, things are going good. I've got requests, uh, obviously, that have been out for quite some time. So yeah, those wait times get a little bit tedious and sometimes even forget about requests. My record, if you could believe it, was over 14 and a half years for one FOIA request to be answered. So when you talk about not everything is 14 and a half years, 
But when you talk about nearly waiting a decade and a half for material to come, it can get tedious, but it's uh, for me, a lot of fun. So I, I, you know, push every um, push in every way that I can and try and get the information that I can. Do you, speaking of which, by the way, do you feel, and I'm not trying to imply any type of um, conspiratorial uh, postulation or, or proposal, but do you feel the wait times are in some cases, of course, there's the due diligence of process and all of that, but do you feel it's pushed and extended deliberately in some instances as opposed to others? I think the wait times can absolutely be strategic. Absolutely. And, and it's very hard to fight that because they are supposed to go in a what's called first in first out basis. So you send in a request and then I send in one the next day. Theoretically, yours should be processed first and then mine that came in the next day. It doesn't work like that, sadly. So it's hard to differentiate between what is strategic because we know they're going to use this as a tool, just make Greenwald wait. So it's you know three years from now, five years from now before he publishes it. And in some cases, that is an average. So then when you hide that strategy within an already uh, broken, I don't want to say broken, but already injured part of the system where it takes them that long, they can easily just kind of hide that strategy. So yeah, it's not conspiratorial. It's it's reality. I mean, that's that's what they do. And, and they want to essentially let things when it's popular or hot in the media. And this isn't just with UFOs. I'm talking about everything. It's, it's, it's beneficial for them to delay as long as they can, let the news cycles exhaust and, and essentially forget about the story. Then you come out with it and there's new information, but uh, you know, the people already dealt with it. So who really cares? You know, and, and that I think is a strategy. Another one is uh, dumping FOIA responses on a Friday evening. And that happens a lot. And you know, darn well, that that's not just a coincidence. It's strategy because the week's news cycles are over. Maybe you'll get some weekend coverage on whatever. But again, you're a couple days past uh, when the next real news cycle begins Monday. So it's it's absolutely strategic. So again, a lot of it is forgivable just simply because that is the reality of FOIA. It takes a long time. In the same respect, there's strategy involved. Would I be pushing too far based on what you said uh, right at this moment in in maybe um, presuming that the military industrial complex seems to really have a hold over that because there seems to be a direct or maybe quote unquote coincidental parallel with when those documents are released to you, sir, and when the news cycle seems to redirect mass consciousness or attention to something else entirely. You know, I wouldn't say that it's that deep, meaning I think that that strategy is definitely has definitely been adopted by the agencies just as simply as through the, the public affairs offices. You know, I mean, all of those types of, of strategies of informing the either mainstream media, media, or the general public, they go hand in hand. So you got one office that uses FOIA, and that's, that's one thing where we see that strategy, but you also see it echoed in public affairs offices also. So I wouldn't go to that length and say that it's more of a military industrial complex kind of thing. Rather, that is just the strategy that they've adopted and have adopted for decades. And it's worked for them. You know, I mean, there's 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 kind of inside jokes about stuff like that, too. And ironically, I think it was last last Friday, I tweeted out early in the morning, like, oh, it's Friday. You know, I wonder if some FOIA request and response is going to get answered today. And some people thought that was a tease and it really wasn't. But that's, again, what we're kind of used to. And, and uh, public affairs works the same way.
Okay, so speaking of which, I appreciate you bringing that up because speaking of public affairs, I would like to make a quick parallel, if I may, to sure. um, Mr. Uh, Stephen Greenstreet's interview with uh, Dr. Eric Davis. I think it was last mm -hmm. year or the year prior, which was that Dr. Eric Davis, and I'm paraphrasing here, said that the Pentagon, the uh, John Kirby, you know, the the spokespeople, that whole office there, um, the public affairs de uh, department, they don't, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. In your experience, sir, as it pertains to avidly filing FOIAs, do you find the same situation being the case with public affairs office um, in, for FOIA? Yeah, I don't agree with Dr. Eric Davis on a lot of things, but on that, I would absolutely uh, echo the same, the same statement. It seems like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing a lot of times. There will be conversations between spokespeople. I've seen that through FOIA. I go after communications and internal documents to kind of see what they're talking about. And sometimes it's redacted because they call that internal deliberation. But sometimes you can extract that information and you can get it and you see how they correspond with each other. Uh, but in the same respect, they very much stay away from the other person's territory. And you'll hear that a lot in the press statements, like you're going to have to check with the Department of State or you're going to have to check with the this or the that. And so it very much is segregated on their work. And uh, in turn, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Uh, uh, digging a little bit deeper into that question, it also is true in the operational world as well. So a lot of times you find research programs that overlap. Mind control was a, a prime example to where uh, the CIA, before they really went full full blast with the MK Ultra program, they were seeing that the U.S. Navy, I believe it was, was doing defensive research on the Soviet advancements of extracting information, which all kind of was tied into that mind control concept, truth drugs and stuff like that. And so the CIA was, was essentially taking that, that research. They were seeing that, uh, figuring out what the Navy was doing, and then realizing, hey, this can't only be for defensive. Let's do it for offensive maneuvers as well, you know, and, and, and essentially utilize that same research. And, and that kind of snowballed into essentially what, what became MKUltra. So you see that, though, when you dig into FOIA, that the Navy wasn't sharing the information. Uh, some of the documentation that comes out, and it's been years since, since I've really looked at, at some of those records. But uh, essentially what it was saying was that the CIA was was getting that information, but it wasn't the Navy like, here you go. Uh, they were essentially finding ways to just get it, but in secret. And, and you see that a lot in the world where in the government world, and uh, if you want to call it like a shadow government kind of thing, those that are operating in the background, not to sound too conspiratorial, but a lot of those programs, sometimes one agency will fund it in secret. And so will another agency. They have no idea they're doing the same research. And 30 years later, we discover through FOIA, they were doing pretty much the same thing. Would you, uh, first off, thank you so much for that, that lengthy and detailed response. Would you, has there ever come a point where, um, I guess you could say putting all the, you know, the, the documents, the data aside, you're, you're submitting a FOIA or over the years that you've been doing this, you are looking at, you know, a filing an appeal or something of the sort. And then you get a response from any agency that says it, this document simply does not exist. And then you thought to yourself, bullshit, has that ever happened? Uh, quite a few times. Yeah. I mean, I've filed over 10,000 FOIAs in the last 25 and a half years. So it's uh, it's happened quite a bit where you know that something is there. And sometimes it's it's no more than a gut feeling that you know it's there. And I'll win an appeal and they'll find, you know, whatever that may be. Uh, sometimes it's malicious where the DOD was denying uh, uh, multiple requests saying no records. 
And they never once informed me over the course of about a year and a half to two years of research that the records I was going after, namely emails, were already destroyed. And I believe that because through FOIA, they will inform you of that. There are legal ways to destroy government documents. There's a big myth out there, and the myth will, will probably last longer than I'm alive. Uh, the government can destroy their records, but there are certain prerequisites that need to be met. Those are called records retention schedules. And so not to get too dry here, but the DOD never informed me that a certain mailbox for a DOD employee that I was trying to hit through FOIA through numerous cases kept coming back no records. They never told me it was destroyed. Through months after the years of research, through months of additional going back and forth, trying to get answers from the DOD, the only determination that I was able to come up with and the Pentagon would not disagree with me um, and they wouldn't refute it was that they, without authorization, destroyed the emails of this DOD employee. The employee was Luis Elizondo, the man who says that uh, you know he ran the secret Pentagon UFO study. It was covered by the New York Times and Politico in December of 2017. I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, he's been all over the news. That was huge. And for me, that broadens this, this issue where uh, they did not want to tell me it was destroyed because they, in my opinion, they knew darn well that I would put two and two together and see that there was no authorization for it. From so a, that, those are I could say very quickly from a mm -hmm. data perspective, those emails that you got pertaining to Luis Elizondo's, uh, you know, the destroyed emails and all of that, that's certainly granted vindication from a data perspective. You can't uh, it can't be denied. And I, th I think I thank you for that for it. either way, if the emails had revealed that he was not or if the emails revealed that he was, which, in fact, it seems as though they did. I, I think uh, everyone deserves an answer. So I, I thank you for that. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and I appreciate that. And, and to go back to your question, because I, I kind of veered away from it there, but trying to show the point that my gut knew that there were documents there it was based on nothing other than a, you know, a gut feeling based on certain keywords that I was asking to be searched. And that's why I pushed the issue and filed numerous appeals based on really kind of no evidence uh, other than, hey, I know that there must be something here. You know, I didn't specifically say, give me all records on his emails that proves or disproves that he was the director of ATIP. It wasn't about that. They were searches for certain keywords and some of the more simplistic ones, one being unidentified. Uh, that doesn't mean that he was talking about unidentified flying objects, but rather in the course of his entire DOD career, he never said anything was unidentified ever in a single message. That didn't, that didn't make sense to me. And that's what kind of cued me in that there was something deeper. So I had filed all the appeals and we're getting the appeals granted, but then all of a sudden uh, it was revealed that it was destroyed. So to me, that, that's that gut feeling that there's more there. Sadly, in this particular case, there was more there, uh, but without authorization, they had deleted all that material. So uh, there are other cases as well where, you know, they, they say, no, sorry, we have no records. They deny it and then I'll appeal and then poof, they, they found it. Um, and Do in you... fact, oh, yeah, please. Here is uh, this was not planned, but since you brought it up, I, I'm going to appeal this. Uh, this was you probably can't read it. It's not a big deal. But um, this was from the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. I literally just opened the envelope yesterday. In short, the uh, very uh, that's correct. Yeah. Right. So uh, 
long story short, it was very similar request. It got aggregated into five different uh, requests that I did for them for email searches relating to UAP in this particular case on all of these individuals uh, at this um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base office, the National Air and Space Intelligence Center, uh, as I said, and they came back no records. And based on public, already publicly made available documentation, I could prove that they were involved in the UAP conversation and on some level. I appealed, won the appeal. They said, okay, John puts up a good case. It goes back. They now found records, which is what this letter says. They now found records, but in every single case that I had filed, they're denying it in full for national security reasons and a few others like uh, internal deliberation and privacy issues. Sorry, just to clarify, they're denying the existence or denying? Giving they originally denied that anything existed. And so one of, well, let's see, one, two, three, four. So there's, there's four cases on this letter, one of which was the only one that got a response uh, when I had appealed, that means. So the other three were being processed in fairness. It's not like they were being ignored. But when the first denial came in, they said no records, that there was no emails that said unidentified aerial phenomena. And I have a, a long list of very related keywords to be safe. And it came back, no records. I felt that was wrong. My gut said, hey, look, I have this evidence over here to show that your office is involved in this conversation. So it may be simple. There could be very few records. No way in heck that they're in, you know, uh, I think they're mentioned in the Gillibrand Amendment of, of memory serves. But regardless, there were documents that, that mentioned them. So I won that appeal. And then all of a sudden, the no records turned into, oh, yeah, we found some, uh, but you can't have them, all of them. 100% of them because of national security reasons. So, so again, going back to your question about getting told one thing, I'm thinking it's BS. There are numerous cases, one of which just in the last 24 hours uh, proves exactly what you just asked. Does this now, I cannot thank you enough for, for such a, a detailed response, but does this, um, again, without uh, getting quote unquote, uh, you know, conspiratorial off of, mm -hmm. you know, baseless nonsense, how can, um, does this speak, what you went through and everything you just explained, does this potentially corroborate in your personal uh, thoughts that there may be, and I say this carefully because I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to attach stigma to any words here, but sure. fac factions, if you will, within the government that cross in a Venn diagram way across intelligence agencies that sort of say, holy crap, like we got to, you know, Mr. Greenwald, he may have this and we have to figure out how to cover our asses, so to speak. Do you think this is, uh, in some cases, a resemblance of those factions, shadow government, um, unofficial, quote unquote, allegiances or alliances getting together in a way, whether literally or not, and just saying, how do we deal with this? Hence why it may take so long for your FOIAs to be, uh, uh, you know, granted and all of that? Sure. So, it, it depends on what level you're talking about. For me, I'm definitely in the camp that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. We've already talked about that. So you can't, in my opinion, just an opinion, have that in one breath, but in the next say that there is a level that just oversees right. everything and then has the, uh, essentially their fingers in the puppet strings and they control everything. For me, I'm, I'm very much in that other camp, just the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. But what I can say with the UAP conversation, and this is provable, is that even though it's not as deep as how you just phrased it, the UAP release of information has now morphed and transformed, I should say, 
into the, uh, the decision-making process for that. Let me rephrase that. The decision-making process has transformed into one office to where before the agencies were able to speak for themselves. Now they all go through one office in the Pentagon, namely the Office of Public Affairs, and one person. Her name is Susan Goff. And that is different than it was, let's say, two and a half, three years ago. So two and a half, three years ago, I was able to get the Navy on the record. So I had broken a story from, um, I think it was September of 2019, uh, September of 2019. And I got the Navy to go on the record to say the gimbal, the FLIR, and the go fast videos that at that point had not been officially released before were considered by the U.S. Navy unidentified. That was a huge revelation. They had never addressed that before. And it goes viral. Now, that again, that statement came from the U.S. Navy because the Navy was allowed to talk on the UAP issue. And it was shortly after that happened, and this story went worldwide, literally, went viral. It was, it was covered by almost every major mainstream publication. I, I used to remember the, the, the country count, but there were quite a few different countries that, that covered it. And I believe that the government realized at that point that they needed to control that message. And that's when it's kind of transformed into one office. So now my whole point with that story is if I go to the Navy, they transfer me to that one office in the Pentagon. If I go to the DIA, they transfer me. If I go to the Air Force, they transfer me. So, so all of those agencies now are being controlled by that one person in that one office. So wouldn't say it's as deep as what you said, but sure. absolutely there's a form of that going on. Gotcha. You, gotcha. You. I appreciate that. Um, now, speaking of which, Susan Goff, is this the same Susan Goff of the Pentagon that claimed when a uh, former head of Israel's space security program for more than 30 years, Haim Ashed, he claimed ETs do exist and world powers like the US and Israel are working with them and there's a galactic federation. This is the same Susan Goff that said no comment to that, if I'm not mistaken. It wouldn't surprise me, but I'll be honest with you. I didn't realize that they have done a no comment on on sure. what he has, has said doesn't surprise me though they they stay out of those types of Claims. of conversations gotcha. you know and uh, talking about other governments either leaders officials stuff like that they they try and stay away from it got you now before we get to the the odni report and all of this uh, a few more questions if i may sure the so you recently were on the hill fox news and and all of this and um without putting you on the spot or anything like that is there anything even if it's a uh i guess you could say uh an implication that or maybe a direct statement is there anything you are told that you cannot bring up when on the air pertaining to this pushes it too far? Never. Okay. No. And, and I'll add very quickly to that. I've done television since I was 17 years old and I've never in one instance been told what uh, not to say. In some instances, I'm told what to say, meaning that producers want to hear certain things, uh, make certain claims in certain ways. And I refuse to do that, but that's just a production creative thing. When it comes to don't say this or don't go there, uh, nothing. And uh, if you don't mind me adding this one other thing, for many years, I, I produced, uh, directed and wrote for big channels like uh, cable channels like History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic Channel. And there was a big conspiracy uh, about shows like that, uh, namely UFO shows. I didn't only do those, but namely the UFO shows that we were instructed to only deal with certain topics or people, and we couldn't pass a line. Uh, and so just to add to your question, because it's a great one, 
I'd love to dispel the myth never once in any of those programs. And we did hours upon hours of programming uh, for those networks. Never once did we get pushback saying, hey, you can't go there. I, I appreciate that answer because at least here on our show, it's not about, um, and I'm not trying to take a, a jab at anyone at all, but for me, it's about playing devil's advocate constantly because who am I to say what is correct, what is incorrect and, and, and so forth. But um, which, uh, in your opinion, over the years, um, which agency do you think you've pissed off the most directly? I know that a lot of their, I, yeah, I know a lot of them, obviously, you know, in a Venn diagram fashion, they, there's conflation with certain operations and whatnot, but is there any agency in particular, in your opinion, where you're like, these guys just freaking they, like, they know me, they know that I know them and, and they just, yeah. You know, I think it depends on the time because there are certain agencies that I will start to hit more volume wise than others. Um, I can tell you the CIA office is not fun to deal with. I hate to say that because I like to put the spotlight on FOIA offices that really do try and do a good job. And there are there are some that do that. Uh, I know the CIA is very hard to deal with. I know that they uh, don't like seeing my requests. Uh, I know that uh, there was somebody from the Pentagon who came out and retired uh, where I was um, upsetting a FOIA office in the Pentagon considerably when they would get my requests. And this is going back even 15, 20 years ago when they had retired and contacted me. And, and they told me about letters that were only in the Pentagon uh, and not published online yet. They were active cases. So they proved who they were. And they would tell me about the bureaucracy, which was one of the reasons they quit because they used me as the example. They would see what they would see a letter from me and, and get really upset. So I wouldn't say there's one more than another. Uh, even the IRS, I know I'm um, definitely not, not liked over there. And as proof, there are two agencies. One is the IRS and the other is the FBI that essentially have a problem list, a problem child list, we'll call it. The FBI calls it a vexum list. I even had to look up that, that word. Uh, but, but it's a list, a very short list, about 10 people, uh, mostly organizations that create an issue when it comes to the FOIA and the ability to garner media attention. So with the FBI, it's a little bit more based on volume, um, but also the ability to get exposure for whatever documents that are uh, being released by the, by the agency. That was the first list that was discovered, again, called the Vexum list with the FBI. But then the IRS, uh, it was discovered, had, had a, a similar list, and I was on it. And I believe that's the one where I was the only actual individual named versus all the other names, which were uh, mainstream media outlets. Uh, so essentially, they were saying, you know, these are the problems, uh, the problem people, you know, be careful what you give to it. So I found that under FOIA and published it. And, you know, it kind of makes you a little unnerving, makes you shift in the seat a little bit because, you know, you ticked off the, uh, the not only the FBI, I'm more afraid of the IRS because I know they can really screw you over. So, uh, right. so, so the, the FBI, the CIA, I'll take that hatred, but the IRS, it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there anymore with FOIA. <laughs> Is there um, anything from the, the DIA? by chance that makes you kind of go, okay, they're sitting on a lot of things. I mean, we see, for example, publicly, Mr. Frederick Portigal, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, former Boeing engineer in which had um, a handful of uh, intellectual uh, properties and um, inventions that the Air Force dumped almost a million dollars, uh, $750,000 into his, his work. Um, 
is there anything of the sort in which you see in, in that regard from the DIA, from um, maybe even more so the Air Force, that is really trying to cover things up, whether it's just intuition based on years of doing FOIAs and research and making connections and things like this, or am I, am I off? No, I don't think you're off. I think every agency, though, really has corners of their operations that they want to hide, uh, DIA included. Uh, I know involving the UFO UAP conversation, you've got OSAP that was contracted out through the DIA, and it has taken from the beginning of 2018 when it was revealed about OSAP to literally, as we speak, documents are being reviewed and, and sent out. So it's taken years. Uh, they've wanted to, to, I would say, hide that connection uh, simply because the, the reality behind what they were doing is, is so muddied at this point. We don't know what to believe. I mean, the former director of the program came out and said that they were studying all aspects of the paranormal and dino beavers and all this stuff in the book, which is really... Some some crazy stuff to read. Jim Lekatsky, if I'm not James Lekatsky, that's Likatsky, right. Right. And then then on the other hand, you've got the DIA saying this was an aerospace research program, forward looking into the future of 40 years of what technology is there. So you have these battling factions. So is that a cover up? I don't know. I I don't know what to what to believe at this point. Uh, so so back to your question. Yeah, the, I think that every agency, military branch has corners that they just don't want to reveal through FOIA. And sometimes it takes the appeal process or even the judicial the judicial system to, to get that stuff out or congressional mandates when uh, agencies don't want to talk. Do you, um, and I, I'm, again, I'm not trying to get um, conspiratorial in the sense of, you know, leading nowhere with it, but are you of the personal opinion that there may in fact be certain individuals from, I guess, as Mr. Elizondo refers to it as legacy programs in the past that may have, um, I guess you could say, scuttled, and we spoke about this before we started recording, scuttled things off to private industry and basically agreed to keep things secret literally with a handshake and nothing was ever put on paper. I'm, tr I'm not trying to be conspiratorial. I'm sure. all for, uh, for the process of all of that. But I also think we have to play devil's advocate and consider, particularly in the, uh, the, the 1940s, 50s, leading up to the official founding of the Department of Energy in 1977. I can't help but think that that uh, in parallel with the Atomic Energy Commission would be a great way to, if you will, scuttle off things to private industry as certain alleged individuals have claimed on video testimony, although we could argue it's anecdotal. But what are your thoughts on the scuttling to private industry, particularly back in the day, as it seems the older faction wanted to sort of shut everything up as opposed to now? Sure. It's a great question to, to unpack and one that, that is talked about a lot in this day and age. But for me, you, you really do have to unpack it and deal it with it in a couple different ways. When you talk about the 40s and 50s, keep in mind the Freedom of Information Act didn't exist yet. Right. So there were no open access laws for them to worry about. And so when you do get for someone like me and I geek out over it, when you see things from the 40s, 50s uh, and even the early 60s when the FOIA wasn't uh, passed yet, you you are looking at an era where they never thought that what they were writing down or putting in a letter or putting in a memo or creating a report over that it would ever see the light of day. You know, they have a top secret stamp on it and that's all that mattered at that point. Right. So for me, it's kind of tough to, to, to at, in that era, 
accept that. Now, fast forward once there are open uh, access laws, sunshine laws on a state level and of the FOIA at a federal level, will they push things to the private sector to hide it? And the problem with that then becomes the reality that when you do a contract, you have deliverables, contractual deliverables. It could be in the form of annual reports, quarterly reports, maybe just a final report, and that's it. But regardless, the contract is purchasing something. And the moment that that private entity takes that something and sends it back, it is FOIAable. It does not matter if it's at the highest levels of classification, it is FOIAable. Totally different conversation on whether or not you'll get it. Uh, but regardless, you know, it, it, it becomes essentially open to somebody like me. In addition, you also have the communications. And I can prove this with, with evidence under FOIA that even though certain corporations are not subject to FOIA, and that is true. So you're going to have a layer there that's completely off limits. But the moment they communicate back with the government agency that they're contracted by, it's fair game. And so I've proven that where corporate communications from the outside going in the, the, the example in my head is the FAA, Bigelow Aerospace's subsidiary known as Bass was communicating with the FAA. And even though Bigelow Aerospace is, is a private corporation, uh, they are not subject to FOIA. A lot of people tell me, well, the, if the secret, the UFO secrets are all there, they can hide it. Well, no, I got Bigelow Aerospace's emails through FOIA because the moment they communicate back, uh, it becomes, again, FOIA-able. So, so, so there are multiple instances where I can prove exactly that. So if there I, is, sorry, please. No, that's okay. Just to finalize the thought, there is partial truth that certain things can be hidden in the private sector, but the, the core of that contract, you know, the whole root of it, the deliverables are, are not going to be able to be hidden. Of course, they can lie and, and can do whatever. You? I mean, we can could, make those arguments. Could, but... one, could one argue they, the deliverables? And I'm only pushing back respect. Sure, for please. The, for the no, 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 I don't devil's mind. Advocate. Um, yeah, could, I don't mind. Could, could one argue that the uh, deliverables were forged? I mean, we see this in the case of, um, if I'm if I'm understanding this correctly, organized crime, right? I mean, at a much lower level, they fake invoices for you know businesses to launder money and things like this. Could some much more complex strategy be applied in that regard, in your opinion? Or you don't see there being a loophole for that? I personally, I don't see a loophole for that, but anything is possible. The, the problem with, with those types of, we'll call them either allegations or, or theories about what's going on sure. is, is the moment you start fabricating, it's very hard to hide stuff like this. And you are playing in very dangerous territory if you are uh, either hoaxing, fabricating, or falsifying at that level. Uh, has it happened off the top of my head? I mean, I can't give you an example, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody were to, to say that. But in this day and age with congressional oversight and some politicians that are just drooling, you know, to, to get any kind of dirt they can on these agencies uh, on both sides of the aisle, you know, to bring out in a hearing and, you know, create some stink about whatever it is. The moment you do, going back to your question, start falsifying, you are just playing with absolute dangerous water. I mean, mm. it, it, so in my opinion, I, I don't think that that is going on simply because of the, the repercussions that would happen. Now, 
misleading Congress uh, on some level. I can see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Obfuscating what the agency is doing. Absolutely can see that covering up a, let's say like a, like a, a, a handout pork in a bill, stuff like that. Absolutely try and obfuscate that, but uh, falsifying and, and fabricating deliverables uh, that that's a, t- that's a tough one. So when we, speaking of which um, when we take a look, for example, at the Admiral um, Wilson and Eric Davis transcript, when you actually, let me, let me uh, rephrase that. First off, what is your take on that? before I get into more deeper questions on that. Sure. Uh, I've done a, a, a big breakdown of the document uh, t- talking about the likelihood of it. Uh, in short, my conclusion is at this point, I don't see it being real. The notes themselves may or likely are a, a, a creation of someone, whether it's Eric Davis or what, I'm not sure. Uh, I have no doubt that they've been around Edgar Mitchell's office and his files. I have no doubt that they've been circulated as real. None of that, none of that I would refute. But the actual description of what happened in those notes, I just don't buy it on on numerous levels. Uh, I just don't see it. And one of the biggest things that I will say is that the legend of, of how this all unfolded is based on a document that I can safely prove as fake. And so when you have that as part of your story, and then so I, so then when I, because I kept getting asked about, I stayed away from it, to be honest with uh, you, gotcha, a gotcha. couple of years back, but getting asked so many times, I'm like, all right, this is it, let's dig in. And numerous stories all surrounded that the root of the story that set Admiral Wilson off uh, on his journey to kind of discover these special access programs and what's going on and what's the truth, mm. it was all based on a NRO document, National Reconnaissance Office document. This surfaced through Dr. Stephen Greer. So I tracked down. Sorry, sir, I don't mean to interrupt mm-hmm. you. Um, I do believe there is a, um, I'm not saying this to you to the audience, there's a difference between the National Reconnaissance Office and the National Reconnaissance Organization, correct? If I'm not uh, mistaken. I I'm think not there's... familiar with the organization that you're referring to. Okay, no the problem. NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office is the, the, the agency that operated in secret for decades until it was officially announced. But I'm not sure about the organization that you're referring to. National Reconnaissance Office. Okay, perfect. Sorry, please carry on. Yes, my No, apologies. that's okay. So when I had dug in a little bit deeper and found this quote-unquote NRO document, I thought there was no way that that was going to be it. It's on Stephen Greer's website. Anybody can see it. That's part of his story. It's been part of his story for a long time. It then through like some of the bigger bloggers that talk about this and analyze it, it's part of their story as well. And this was what was given according to the the legend the the story uh, was given to Admiral Wilson that said, Hey, look, these keywords here, this is what we're, we're looking at. And, and, and essentially those keywords are what made him, get the discovery that make the discovery that he did. And then the whole story goes from there. Long story short, uh, that document is false. And I can, uh, I feel safely prove it. I analyzed the document top to bottom. Uh, It even had the wrong seal on it. Uh, There were quite a few uh, issues that were going on with the record itself. Uh, But that aside, the response to that uh, was essentially the narrative shifted. Well, Admiral Wilson didn't necessarily use that document and, and he didn't need that to go on the way. So when the narrative shifts, for me, that's a big red flag that the, 
that the biggest supporters that this that this depicts a real event don't really have the foundation to say that it's real and and so i've since backed off of really going after the records because i think at this point until new evidence surfaces it can be put to bed uh, that doesn't mean you don't you have to move on i'm happy to discuss it i'm just talking about the research in general Right. So from a, a data driven perspective, would you say that, for example, although one could argue anecdotally, Mr. Davis saying no comment on Mr. Greenstreet's basement office, the, those deleted scenes that like if we're being honest, I think we've all seen on, you know, circulate on Reddit and Twitter that uh, were taken down and then people, you know, luckily made copies of and Dr. Eric Davis being shown directly by Mr. Greenstreet, not sure if you've seen the clips. I um, have. Yes, right. Uh, Dr. Eric Davis saying I can't comment on any of that. Now, granted saying can't comment does not mean that it's true. Um, with that being said, do you factor that in, not from a data perspective, but maybe from a human angle as in, okay, maybe there's a there there? But along the way, things so, got muddied. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's a fair question. So I did consider that. And I reached out to numerous people that are away from the UFO conversation, have, mm -hmm. have nothing to do with this. But I know for a fact, have security clearances up to the top secret level. And I said, if I have fake or real, doesn't matter, a, a, a document that allegedly has classified material on it. And it stretches, you know, whatever it is, five, six, seven pages in length. Sure. Uh, but but there's different claims on there. Talk about projects, angles, so on and so forth. Can you comment on it? And across the board, they all said no. And and meaning that they would have to give a no comment because the minute you say it's fake or the minute you say it's real, either way, you are speaking on behalf of the United States government based on this was about Thomas Wilson and official U.S. government projects. And you, you just can't, you can't do that. Right. And so I did take that into consideration on what does a no comment really mean? And in ufology, in some circle, like some, some corners of, of UFO conversations, a no comment means, aha, that's confirmation. Uh, but it doesn't. And, and, and so I had made that that point to a couple of people. I had a, a, it was, it was a great debate. I, I have no, no, no um, bad things to say about this particular individual. His name is Jay from project, uh, project unity. And we don't see eye to eye on the Wilson Davis stuff, but it was a very respectful conversation. It's not always respectful when talking about this. Uh, but in this show, uh, I had brought this, this up as well. And I encourage those that support the story. If you do know people with clearances or start to research that, see if they're able to talk about class potentially alleged classified material and they can't do it because the moment you do, you act as a spokesperson. So anybody with a clearance, yeah, I would, I would envision them saying uh, no comment. Are there any contextual circumstances in which, in your humble opinion, based on your experience over the years, a no comment means a yes based on process of elimination of other possibilities? And, and it's anecdotally, not across yeah. the board. I can't think of any scenarios where if I got a no comment that that would mean anything. But sure. that's me. You know, there's going to be other people that that would take value in that. And I, and I'm, I would be open to certain situations or scenarios where if I got that, I might consider it, but with the Wilson Davis stuff, there was enough to work against it that I felt that it was not worth it in another context. 
my gut says, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really take it to the bank on anything, but fair, you know, I, I mean, I can't think of every scenario I, I, where it might play I, out. If I'm being honest with you, sir, I respect that very much because I think one of the things that needs to be had and you know, who am I to say to argue this, but, um, good faith conversation needs to be more prevalent with these topics. I think it's great if there's disagreements in a respectful way, because we can then use the process of elimination to bring a multitude of perspectives together and say, okay, what are the handful of evidentiary conclusions that we can come to? And like, I never say personally, I have proof unless, you know, I got a, I got a gray right over here, right next to me, you know, um, with that being said, I think you, you follow that same, uh, train of thought, if you will. Now, speaking of which, uh, we I did ask you this just a couple minutes before we started recording, uh, just to be transparent to the audience. Um, I asked I had asked you if because I have been um told again, it could be uh, you know, uh maybe I, I misinterpreted or maybe it was uh complete nonsense, if you will, but that certain data or certain uh I guess you could say con context of data amongst approved for release or unclassified documents when aggregated together in a particular way in a particular order can become classified material is this something in which you've come across if yes or no why or why not and why do you think that may or may not be the case sure so i i have heard very similar things uh, about that over the years uh, and and my feeling is no, it, it's it's not true or accurate. And the reason is, is during a document review, even at an unclassified level, something has to be reviewed. But 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 sticking with the classified records, the, that review process has to look at that material, whether photo, video, document, or all of the above, and figure out if anything on there should remain classified or is exempt from release. And it, and it truly at that point cannot be aggregated with anything else because they wouldn't release, let's say, and this is maybe kind of a silly example, but half of a blueprint because, well, you don't have the whole half, so it doesn't really matter, but maybe another agency will, will release the other half. This is a silly, simplistic you know, analogy, but regardless, I, I feel it's the same where once something is reviewed, it has to either put be put with something else or stand alone, it doesn't matter, remain at an unclassified cleared for public release status. And right. so I can't see a scenario where they would release something in hopes that the other part of it when combined with would not be released. You know, I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. So um, I, I don't see that. Uh, I, I don't see that as a reality. Sure, sure. Um, speaking of which, pertaining to things that cannot be FOIA and, and whatnot. Um, so you had said that the NRO was basically non-existent, at least on a public level, for many, many years before it became Correct. sort of like the NSA it was a joke, no such agency very early on. Um, when we take a look, for example, uh, so first off, can you FOIA the NRO? Yes, can you can. Okay. Has there been anything? I mean, I have been going down the path and maybe this is leading me nowhere because I must admit when I'm uh, incorrect or I've, you know, gone down a nothing rabbit hole, but I'm currently exploring the possibility that the NRO relative to open source video testimony from, uh, you know, 20 years back, uh, Don Phillips from the National Press Club and, and all of this, um, 
that they are the team in which Mr. Phillips, Staff Sergeant Clifford Stone, uh, may they rest in peace, claimed that there are teams that penetrate these underground military facilities, not necessarily ET related, but some of these, uh, some of the tech these teams use and whatnot are um, ET influenced. In addition to the NRO has teams that go around the world and do what's called asset retrieval. Now, Mr. Don Phillips did not say the NRO. That is my humble opinion of that. Would you, in your opinion, based on your years of, of foyering and dealing with these agencies, say that is a, an accurate path to travel? Or again, the NRO, Riel, of course, brought up to me six months ago, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He goes, I bet you they have loads of things there, and I'm pretty sure they do. Do you think that is a, an appropriate path to pursue, or do you think that they're just going to keep giving you know, bullshit answers, sort of like, no, we have nothing, we have nothing? Well, when it comes to the NRO and a team, if and correct me if I just misheard it, but but in relation to the NRO having, let's say, a field op yes. going out, um, that's really out of, in my opinion, would be out sure. of their purview, regardless of of what the team is doing. Sure, um, they're just not that type of an agency where they're going to the Sudan or Afghanistan or or whatever. Right, they work in conjunction with those teams that would go out there and do either asset retrieval or something like that. Um, keep in mind the mission of the NRO and they're, they're our spy satellite agency and has been even before we even knew about them with the Corona satellite, the lanyard Argon and all those original satellites that paved the way for today. So, you know, they have offices and stuff, but their, their main kind of mission and goal is, is definitely the, the satellite aspect of all of this. So that's why I say they would work in conjunction where if gotcha. you needed satellite cover of, or satellite coverage of Sudan, Afghanistan, wherever, yeah, NRO is the guy you call, you know, and they, they'll give you that intelligence to allow you to make uh, decisions on the ground. But those teams likely would be elsewhere. The NGA has definitely gotten a shot in the arm in the last six months. Now I've had conversation, or excuse me, I've had FOIA cases uh, that have been at the NGA years and years ago, they told me that they had nothing related to UFOs or UAPs. But now with the public version of the report last year, we know geospatial intelligence plays a role in this. And then in addition, uh, a former CIA um, uh, agent, uh, John Ramirez, who's been interviewed, my, uh, myself included, I've had him on my show, really also kind of gave the idea that the NGA was involved uh, because he spoke about that as well, saying nobody was going to them with FOIA cases. Uh, and, and I love speaking with John. He was a, a little wrong there just because I had already gone to the, the NGA. So people are hitting it. Uh, the most recent case I filed is still open. So that is a, a kind of still unfolding. I filed that last early last year uh, to see what they had. The release of the classified report, the partial release uh, that I published last week, that also really injected the possibility that the NGA has specifically UAP material because it talked about photos and videos with the NGA. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of veering away from your question, no, no, but no. to come back, come back to it, the NGAs is, I mean, not everything is known about what these, these agencies do when it comes to their access and, and their inventory on what they can supply from an intelligence standpoint, sure. uh, but also strikes me as the same answer as the NRO, that they're just not the, the team on the ground, but they're the support above. Would you be in the um, 
in the ballpark opinion of saying that the NRO and the NGA, amongst other agencies, have crystal, crystal clear images and video? I don't uh, know about crystal clear. Uh, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet sure. the farm on that one. Sure. But I would say that it is definite that they have imagery and videos because the classified report said it. That was one of the bigger discoveries with the partial release that it solidifies that the uh, geospatial intelligence that they're collecting, which is likely the NGA, but also could be, you know, a, a, another agency or two. But regardless, that exists. We know that now it's in writing. From a legal standpoint, very quick to point out, you can have your gut feelings, not you, but like researchers like me, we can have our gut feelings and go after something. It doesn't mean anything. Something like this proves that's in, from a legal standpoint that I could now submit that and go, okay, look, you guys receive geospatial intelligence in the form of images and videos. I want them. And, and uh, of course, legally said, uh, but, but submit that as evidence, as supporting proof that it could be used in a FOIA request. And then if you get denied, you can use it in an appeal. So you always look for those little tidbits of information. Some people dismiss the partial release of the classified report, not having anything new, but rather this was very new and something that can be utilized in the future to extract information. Speaking of very new, we will get to that report. I'll put it up mm -hmm. on the screen very shortly, and I would love for you to, to break it down for us. Sure. Um, however, um, I, I cannot um, help but uh, bring up this opportunity since we have you here, sir. Do you think from a legal perspective, from uh, your own personal perspective, from someone who's been uh, you know, dealing with these agencies for, for years and years that there is whether it was more so back in the day with regards to these legacy programs or rogue um, compartments, if you will, that and I want to say this very carefully, but what's been referred to as black money or drug money could somehow make its way into funding some of these operations, not all of them, but maybe a particular extent. Would there be any way that you personally, sir, see that being a possibility? Obviously, now things are far more transparent. But I, I say that I ask this because I look at the Atomic Energy Commission and people like Edward Teller, those guys, every time a journalist interviews them off the record, they keep saying, uh, again, anonymous sources, but they sat on the board of the AEC that, you know, the, you know, Roswell didn't, uh, Roswell did happen, but it was a, a psyop by Stalin with genetically engineered children. And this is not to disrespect any author or any uh, journalist, but it, it seems as though those guys on the Atomic Energy Commission were, they came from a generation of, you take your secrets to your grave, no matter what, whereas nowadays, mm -hmm. it's more like people are questioning, why do we need to do that? So do you see that group of individuals back then? opting for um, a resource like, I, I don't want to say drug money specifically, but something but like off, black budget money, black yeah. budget money off the books that can work its way in to the DOD's uh, programs. Yeah, absolutely. I've got no, no qualms about saying that black budget money is and, and black money and stuff that's not accounted for, they get shoveled into classified programs, highly, you know, secretive programs across the board from decades ago to today. And I know we'll get into it, but but just to kind of tie it into the the revelation and the public report about UAPs, and then also uh, in the classified version as well, that they couldn't peg any single UAP case as classified technology. Uh, but what I why I wanted to bring that that point up is we don't know if that's true, and black budget money is precisely the reason 
on why that may or may not be true. Because let's say uh, at a classified level, they, they brought in a case and they knew that a sp- specific drone or, or whatever classified platform was being tested. Pilots are not read in. They see it, encounter it, go, holy cow, we need to report this. It's reported, blows up as a UAP case, maybe even catches it on a FLIR camera. But at the highest levels of those cleared, they know, uh-oh, you know, this is, this is something that's kind of getting a little bit blown out here, but this was a classified platform. If it was funded by black budget money, would they tell Congress? And that, that to me is one question. I don't have the exact answer for you, sure. but it needs to be asked. Would they then put Congress in a position to start getting tipped off, even though they likely know it anyway, uh, but tipped off on the reality that there's all this money being shoveled towards this program or that type of weapon or that platform, whatever it may be, fill in the blank. And if somebody's savvy enough on the intelligence committee reads that and goes, huh, wonder where that came from. And they push back and they say, okay, well, tell me the, what's the program here. And then there's no paper trail whatsoever. It's all black budget money. It's all side deals. It's all right. whatever it may be. Then all of a sudden you're going to spiral downhill very quickly on if Congress wants to drool over it and create a stink, they absolutely can. So what's better? Open up the door for that or simply lie and just cover, keep it at a highly classified level, even though it's Congress and the Senate and, oh, my God, how can you lie to them? Well, we know things have been kept from them in the past. The whole MK Ultra thing came out simply because somebody was tipped off. It leaked. Congress said, huh, what, wait, what? And then they did the hearings and so on and so forth. So, so we have a proven history that Congress is largely left in the dark. So with the black budget money, I, we all know it's there. Uh, we, even high ranking officials have talked about it being there and, and uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a reality. It absolutely is a downright reality. So um, when you, for example, sir, take a look, I would like to share my screen with you for a couple sure. of different things here. Uh, when you take a look in the moment at, let's say here, this article from the LA Times from July 30th, 1986, $37 <laughs> screws, just over seven, uh, just under eight grand coffee maker, 600. And let's, that doesn't even count currency uh, conversion and inflation to today. Um, do you see this in, again, I don't mean to, you know, uh, without i know you're a data-driven individual in all of this but do you see this as a money laundering to any extent um apparatus particularly during the time when secrecy was much more able to be kept if you will and i ask this because it's been alleged by certain individuals i don't want to say the names because it I, i can't get them on the record to confirm it that um the cost of maintaining super, super secret compartmentalized programs is many, many times over much more costly than the program itself. So when you look at something like this, do you, does your mind travel down that path as well? Or am I off in your opinion? Well, if I, if I followed you, right. I mean, when it comes to the laundering stuff, I really think that this is how they make the money make sense because, and and so sometimes this is keeping the projects off the books but making the, uh, just using round numbers, sure. the $10 billion on this particular line item makes sense. So in order to do that, you need to highly inflate what you're spending money on. Right. And, and I'll say, uh, going back to when I was telling you stories about the entertainment industry, um, that was the, the, one of my favorite stories about entertainment, which goes back decades, is the story of a C-47. 
And a C-47 is, I mean, you do you know what a C-47 is in relation to, right? Like Off most the top people, of my head, no. Yeah, most people don't. So back in the day, you use, uh, when the lights would get hot on a set, you would use clothespins that would go into these hot lights to hold the color gels over. Well, they would have budgets for that. All right. And so they would go out and they would turn in receipts. doesn't sound like a lot, but on a production, you'd use, you know, thousands of them. Long story short, the production accountants would look at it and go, wait a minute, you don't need that. You know, why are you buying clothespins? No, because they didn't know. Right. And all the production people are going, yeah, we actually use them, you know? So what they started doing was just creating nicknames. So C-47s. So now when the production accountants would see it, they go, oh, C-47s, you really need that. Oh they didn't know God. what the hell it was, you know? So I'm using that as kind of a fun example, right. but that's essentially what we're looking at. Either just putting, putting either code words or meaningless numbers or just beef up everything else. So now you don't even have the line item on there. You just throw in a $3,000 toilet seat. And then when you're going through these, you know, massive budgets, they go, yep, toilet seats, you need that, so on and so forth. And then it wasn't until they drilled in and the New York Times story came out. I don't know if you sent that to me recently. Somebody just posted that. I just saw that the other day. Was no, that you? I don't recall if I'm being honest. Oh, I don't, that's I, funny. I don't want to say if that was the yeah, case, but uh, it's a funny little side note. That particular LA Times article, uh, if you read the full thing at the very bottom, it says just to prove how ridiculous this this um, the cost of screws are, $37 screws. The LA Times in 1986 threw in a free screw on the back of each copy for every person that purchased that that uh, paper for that day, just to make a point to say, oh, that's funny. These screws are like worth like less than a couple cents. And how are they worth $37 to the Pentagon? So yeah. again, um, have you found, by the way, that the Air Force seems to be the most um, tightly kept, um, I don't want to say agency per se, but it seems like at the moment, the Air Force, and I'm just going to be straight up about it, mm -hmm. they, uh, and this is not a in a positive nor negative manner when I say this, the Air Force seems to have in certain factions, because I there are many I've spoken to in the Air Force, nothing but respect for their service, but certain factions near the higher echelons of power are very occult based, very um, also evangelical in some cases. One spectrum, you have evangelical, other spectrum, allegedly, you know, occult based, if you will. Have you come across any of this pertaining to FOIA requests uh, or communications? In relation to the UAP story or just in general? Just in general, just in general. Not really in general, to be honest with you. Uh, the reason why I asked the differentiation, if which angle you were talking about, is that the UFO conversation, that has come up. And that is okay. rooted to Luis Elizondo's uh, stance that, um, that within the Pentagon, there was very much a religious angle that UAPs repre represented a demonic entity or yeah. of some court or, or, or of some type. And, and it was demonic. So they, they wanted to just kind of, you Shut know, not even, yeah, to deal yeah. with it. Uh, I, I've never seen proof of that. And I, I respectfully disagree that, that they're making intelligence decisions. And I, and I hope sure. not, I really do right, that right. they're not making intelligence decisions based on that. Uh, not that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to turn it religious, but not that any of that doesn't have bearing, but you know, how are they going to prove that UAP or some kind of demonic, you know, is, is, is something connected to that? It just didn't make sense to me that they would go down that route. Right. I mean, for, for, for decades with military decisions, I mean, you very, very rarely hear about that. And, and uh, so I, I just kind of respectfully push back going, look, sure. if, if you want to make that claim, let's, let's see something like who yep. are you, you know, name some names here. Uh, because that's uh, concerning on numerous um, levels. I, I don't. I don't mean to um, uh, 
not put you on the spot, but I do want mm -hmm. to mention it for the audience. Um, for example, uh, Michael Aquino back in the, the 70s and 80s, I believe, with the Air Force, uh, very uh, occult based, if you will. Now, let me be very clear to the audience. I'm not saying that is a bad thing nor a good thing. I'm just trying to uh, inquire in that regard. Um, when we look not at the Air Force, to be fair, to add to your point, John, but when we look at the Department of Energy, assuming I have my facts correct, uh, Jack Parsons, um, JPL, uh, all of that, there was a very interesting uh, fruition of the Department of Energy pertaining to uh, occultist based rituals and things like this. Uh, have you have you heard of this? Um, by chance? I have not. No. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, I just wanted to bring that up for the audience. I'm not trying to lean that in either direction because that's not for me to say if that's good nor bad. And again, it's all perspective. Um, now, if I can share with you again, my screen, sir, mm -hmm. right before we go to the ODNI report, it's just, I, I can't thank you enough for your time, by the way. Oh, of course. My the pleasure. Battelle Memorial Institute um, is a private nonprofit applied science and tech development company in Columbus, Ohio. They are a charitable trust organized as a nonprofit corporation uh, under the laws of the state of Ohio and, ex and is exempt from taxation under Section 501c3 of the uh, Internal Revenue Code because it is organized for charitable, scientific, and education purposes. I am not trying to make, uh, you know, random connections, as they say, but I do believe this is the same Battelle that Mr. Jacques Vallée brought on, um, brought up with James Fox on the Joe Rogan podcast, I think two years back at this point, stating that it, it, Battelle was the, uh, I guess you could say institution that recommended with a letter in the 60s stating that this UFO stuff needs to be covered up and, and all of this. Is there anything that, have you done any in inquiries, sir, pertaining to Battelle? If not, or even if you have, could they be foia a bull? Um, and, and if not, or if so, would Battelle be an institution in which you may consider uh, hiding certain, uh, is hiding certain things, if you will, uh, metamaterials, things like this? So, yes. So going back to the Jacques Vallée thing, and, and I believe that he's talking about, I wanted to kind of double check my facts here as we're sure. talking, but I think that he's talking about uh, Project Blue Book Special Report 14. Correct. And Correct. that was that was done by Battelle. Um, Thank there's you for been the a, clarification, by the way. Yeah, no, 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 no problem. And I, and I just, again, I wanted to make sure I was accurate on that. Mm -hmm. So I have that study on, on the blackvault.com. If anybody wants to see it, just, just search the search engine for Battelle and it'll come up. But I know Battelle has also been involved in a lot of rumors since then. And I think you probably are maybe even hinting at that with the question with the metamaterials and so on. And there's been allegations that uh, if I remember correctly, Battelle had a report about uh, that memory metal and potentially tying back to the, the craft at Roswell and this and that. And it was rumored about for years. And um, I'll have to send it to you after the, the show, but I dug up that report. So everybody was talking about the report, but never anybody ever found it. And so I was able to get it through FOIA and it was not what everybody was, was saying at that point. And uh, there was one particular researcher who boasted about it for many, many years uh, about this this missing report and so whenever somebody says it's missing i have to you know i have to sure. go find it like challenge yeah. accepted uh, but ended up finding it and i know it really upset one of the researchers because he felt um you know kind of misled uh by another person making the claim so i just don't want to name names and put of course, bad spotlight no, of, on anybody but of course regardless it was kind of a public uh thing the way it unfolded on social media but 
I ended up posting it and, and after the show, I'll dig it up and I'll send it to sure. you. So, so to your question, I mean, yes, there's a lot of rumors, but I think that it's been caught up in that legend and lore also mm. when it comes to Battelle. So they had that rooted special report 14. So they already have the UFO in their closet kind of, so to speak. And then fast forward when the allegations were that they had this report and they were really kind of hiding this, this alien tech and Hey, this report vanished. Well, no, it didn't vanish. It came out officially and it just wasn't what it was said to be right now. If I may, um, again, for like healthy, good faith debate, sure. if I may push back with respects to the description in which we just uh, looked at pertaining to the way Battelle is structured as an organization, could one argue um, whether strongly or weakly that Battelle, and I'm just, you know, shooting ideas out of mm -hmm. my head here, that Battelle may have blatantly lied or obfuscated. And I'm only asking for the sake of playing devil's advocate, not to say sure. you're wrong, I'm right, not none of that. Yeah. And I don't mind those questions at all. Yeah. I, and I would just give kind of a similar answer to before when you start lying and fabricating, there are, there are a lot of risks with that. And, right. and although I would always accept that either a corporation, a nonprofit or otherwise, or even government agency would do it, you would have to really, really bring the receipts that, that, that happened, that they lied. So, right. So, right. so could they absolutely, would I be more believing of a ufo story and legend that snowballed into something that lasted for decades that wasn't true mm. i would lean towards that because we've had sure you know quite quite a few of, of those things uh happen got you got you well so um before we get to some uh questions from our patreon members i would love for you sir if you'd be willing uh, to break down i'm gonna pull up uh on the mm -hmm. screen here for the audience when they end up watching this um the right from your website the odni report and my gosh this this really um you seem to really uh do a good job and i and i thank you for that pertaining to you know, however you FOIA this and got uh, a one year appeal, we see here there's clearly uh, an identification of common shapes uh, and it's been completely redacted and blacked out. And we see as well less common slash irregular shapes. Now, the question for me becomes to what extent can they um, uh, justify blacking out shapes? Yeah. So I appealed <laughs> this. Um... Just a quick note, this, this actually came out through what's called a mandatory declassification review. It's very similar to FOIA, but it uh, I had filed the day after the public report came out and essentially through MDR, which is part of the Code of Federal Regulations, it varies from agency to agency, Sure, but not to get too dry. Essentially, it forces them to review the material for declassification. Mm. With the MDR process, I can appeal as well. So I just want to give that quick preface. Thank you. Yeah. Just because in what you just brought up is probably one of the things that resonated with the public the most on how frustrating these redactions really are. Right. And what is classified about that? I, I really have no answer for you, which made its way into the appeal. And my justification was they are saying, and this is a also a kind of an offshoot conversation, which I'm happy to have, but they are saying in the report that, that none of it is classified government tech being tested, uh, that none of it is essentially drone technology. They couldn't peg any of them. So what would be classified with something like this? Mm. And what justification would there be? Because now we can prove that it does not meet their criteria 
for an exemption. It's just a shape. The images, let's say underneath here, there's three possibilities. It's like silhouettes or diagrams or, you know, like simple sure. drawings of yep. shapes, still frames of either photographs or videos, or a combination of both. If I were a betting man, I would say a combination of both. And what that then means is, is how could you justify classifying that? So in my appeal, I used evidence and my evidence was a UAP related case of a UAP that encroached uh, on the USS Stout. Now, there were three photographs that were in this document that I got declassified, two of which were not redacted, one of which was. The one was clearly a quadcopter drone. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There was great detail sure. on it. They couldn't identify it, meaning who was it? Was it a sailor going out to the deck or, you know, a Chinese ship that was nearby? There was no identifier, but it was clearly a drone. And so my justification to use that in the appeal is here is a highly detailed piece of evidence connected to the UAP issue that I got declassified was not redacted and clearly shows the shape. Right. And wh where I'm going with this is if we are dealing with a mundane explanation like drones or something to that effect, then at least one of those common shapes would resemble a drone. Right. And so my justification is, hey, look, I've already I've already gotten this out from the U.S. Navy declassified. So there's no justification. The last thing to close the thought is the citation they use is uh, part of the executive order that talks about MDRs, uh, 13526, specifically 1.4A. So when you see the redactions, you'll see text that's on it. So for those who don't know, those are the citations of what they're saying justifies their redaction. So in the specific one for the shapes, it is 1.4A. That translates into plain English as military plans, weapon systems, or operations. Well, if they already said that it was not any of our stuff, right. how can they justify the redaction by saying military plans, weapon systems, or operations? Right. And so that was my justification to say, okay, either you guys are lying or this is not justified. And, and so in my appeal process, hopefully they will review that and the evidence that I showed, I've gotten stuff before and we'll see what they say. It's a finger cross moment. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. I, but I do feel I put up a good case for it. God, I can't thank you enough on behalf of, I think, everybody. When, when I say that, you know, that full on blacked out redaction, when I saw that on your Twitter, I was like, yeah, I was like, my God, this is basically like when a child lies. <laughs> I mean, at yep. least in my opinion, that that's what I kind of gathered. Yeah. And, and, in, and in fairness to the process, there are some redactions, and I even note this in my appeal, that are acceptable. They're frustrating, sure, sure. but they're acceptable. But I think it's worthy of noting that when you're talking about weapon systems and their capabilities and their vulnerabilities, sure, absolutely redact that as much as we'd love to see it. But there are clearly, clearly sections of this that are not that. And, th and that was what I was fighting the most in the appeal. Now, quick question pertaining mm -hmm. to uh, going back. This just came to my head right now when you had said that private corporations are not foyable unless or until they reach out to a government entity and then boom, those communications are foyable. 
are there ways in which those conversations could be obfuscated out of context or those communications so that they cannot be? And I ask this as it pertains to, say, for example, uh, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works Division, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know to what extent they may uh, communicate with the Pentagon. I imagine, or the DOD, they mm -hmm. use, uh, you know, uh, very, you know, dummy companies, things like this to, to get to so that people can't like journalists or people like yourself can't find it and what have you. But when we see, for example, again, not to bring him up constantly, but Don Phillips, former Skunk Works, Air Force, uh, CIA, the whole thing. Um, when he said on video testimony in 2000, the early 2000s, that there is a three letter agency under contract in the United States, in which uh, does testing and, and uh, alleged reverse engineering of these craft, if you will. Do you when you hear that three letter agency, does any agency in particular come to mind in your opinion, sir? I mean, I, I myself, I think of um, obviously you know that, you know, Raytheon, all of that Lockheed, I think of also um, EG&G. Uh, you know, certain very, very gray area, uh, you know, Bechtel uh, companies such as mm -hmm. this, that, you know, you kind of ask you could, on, a, on the surface what they do, and it's just overly vague statements. Is there anything in that regard that, that you've experienced? So you talk, when you say three-letter agency, I translate that as to a government agency that's doing this. But are you asking, is a private corporation essentially taking over that and you're using three letter agency is just kind of a broad descriptor. Uh, sorry, let me let me rephrase that. Thank you for mm -hmm. the clarification. Uh, Mr. Phillips in the video testimony, if I assuming my, my transcript notes are correct here, claimed that we have a three letter agency in these United States under contract, in which I will not mention on this video. So maybe he when he says agency, maybe he's referring to private corporation. Point being, is it possible that the private corporation communications could be obfuscated so that certain things cannot be foyable? Well, for me, in my in, the way I would approach that is the obfuscation is the redaction. So if you're talking about a classified program, whether it, whatever it may be, the the obfuscation is it's classified, which would be exemption B1 under the Freedom of Information Act. And, and that's a very easy, there are two, there are two redactions that are very easy to pull off. Sure. The first one, which is national security B1. And that the, as a private citizen, how do I fight that? How do I know what they say is classified? So it's a very tough thing to fight. The second one that's very easy to utilize and very tough to fight is exemption B5. That's called internal deliberation. So the obfuscation, the way that I would approach answering your question is just that they can hide it essentially with redaction. Mm -hmm. They can hide all that under B1 and B5 very, very easily. Okay. And both of those exemptions that should be pointed out are being debated even in Congress as we speak about fixing the FOIA and the, the director of national intelligence um, Avril Haines uh, had had a couple months ago talked about overclassification right. and the fact that they're just classifying everything, which is creating a national security risk. Although the general public was kind of the last thing that she brought up, uh, she, she was saying that it, it prohibits them uh, from sharing this information internally. And then, of course, when when reasonable, share it with the general public as well. So so again, I, I think that and this even ties into your to your questions about fabricating and hoaxing, right. that it's very easy for them to obfuscate as it's already written in the mm. code and it's legal. And it's very hard for me to fight a lot of it. So 
you know, I, I don't, I don't see the obfuscation on that level other than redactions. Got you. Got you. Okay. Um, now I appreciate that so much mm -hmm. and can't thank you enough for your time. I know we have about uh, 15 or 20 more minutes with you. Um, I would like to give Riel the floor if you have any questions for Mr. Greenwald. And then I would like to ask, uh, we have a few questions from our Patreon members, if that's all mm -hmm. right, but Riel, please. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. This has been really fascinating to be a fly on the wall here. It's really, really cool stuff. Uh, so uh, I'm just I glad you're still awake. I, I oh, was worried I'm, I was going to put you guys to sleep. <laughs> not at all. I've got a uh, page and a half of notes. We we um, geek out over this stuff, John. Oh, good. Which is, this yeah. is great. Thank good you. company then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that uh, listening to your podcast, uh, how you and Daniel Otis had such a great bonding experience. And I loved that, how you, you, know, you, you even suggested that you two have a session where you're basically reviewing documents. Mm -hmm. And Generation Z has done live streams where they're doing the same thing. We're just like, hey, here's an important document. Let's just review review it and let's just get this information out there. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to bring up the interview you had with Daniel Otis. Uh, so uh, I'm from Canada, actually from Winnipeg. So that was very fascinating to me because of the uh, NORAD uh, mm -hmm. headquarters center, which has always been a rumor in, in my research and to have you guys kind of uh, ascertained that in your discussion was fascinating. But I wanted to uh, add on to the question that Dave just asked uh, bringing a parallel between how the Canadian government handles the FOIA requests mm -hmm. and the American government, because I know that was a part of the discussion yeah. where uh, I believe that uh, Daniel Otis had said that he prefers that it stays with the government instead of going to the private sector. So could you talk about the difference between the like for specifically UFOs, UAPs? How if it stays in the private sector versus or stays in the public sector, the government versus private sector? Sure. So that was a few interviews ago. So forgive me if I don't remember it uh, correctly, but where I think I where I think you're going is you're talking about the UFO reports staying with a government agency versus being sent out for for investigation. OK, so, yeah, w in Canada, I know for uh, quite some time, Chris Rutkowski, who even may still be receiving the reports, was essentially getting the reports from the government, but there was no contractual agreement that Chris would then send any reports back. Essentially, they were relaying and that was it. And I think where Daniel's point was, and it's a good one, is that the moment that happens, we're at the mercy of, and I know Chris, I know he would release the information, but you're at the, the mercy of wherever they're relaying that, that information. But when you have a government program, then everything stays essentially FOIAable in America and in Canada, the Access to Information Act I don't know what the uh, acronym would be pronounced like, but regardless, uh, the AIA, you can then use that to to get the reports. So for someone like Daniel, for someone like me, we want the law that allows us to access it. But the moment that it it leaves the federal government here in America or or that uh, the, the, that boundary, then it's it's off limits to us. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Um, another one I wanted to bring up, and this is kind of playing uh, devil's advocate a little bit, is you you and Dave, you had the discussion about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. Well, uh, later on in the discussion, we also uh, bring up that there is the black money budget and there is the reality that these agencies and entities buy and obfuscate. So that was interesting how on one hand, we, uh, you, I think you said you didn't really, you didn't think that they were compatible to recognize that the the left hand and the right hand don't really know what they're doing, but then behind the scenes there's this higher uh, higher powered uh, kind of 
pulling the strings. I don't know how, what you, if you refer to it as the deep state, or I don't know if you have like a general, uh, like a term to just succinctly say, these are the fa- these are the forces behind the government that really control uh, what's going on. But that's interesting because when we had our discussion with Charlie Robinson from Macroaggressions, it was the same kind of thing. And same with this uh, electrical engineer we've been interviewing, Daniel Winter, who says that he, they kind of just say people are stupid and people are fallible. But at the same time, clearly there is intelligent uh, structure and planning behind the scenes that is kind of giving directions or um, yeah, basically giving directions. So I, it's hard to phrase this into a question, but I just wanted to kind of bring that up that yes, on the surface, there is the just stupidity and confusion and people don't really know what they're doing, but then there could be these layers behind the scenes that are actually more uh, intricate with how they, they structure and plan can things I, out. Can I jump in very quickly, Riel? Please. I think how, I think what Riel is asking, um, how would you reconcile that, sir, with, with respects to Davey, your own- uh, you froze up there. Oh, so did not hear uh, that question. Better now? John, are you still good? I'm still good, yeah. He okay. froze on my end too. Yeah, okay. Hello, and we are back. Uh, we Dave just had some technical difficulties, but so this is Riel here, and we're finishing off our interview with Mr. John Greenwald of The Black Vault. And so uh, the point that was cut out was, um, Dave was actually in the process of trying to clarify the question that I had about how do we reconcile the idea that the left hand and the right hand of these organizations don't know what they're doing with the idea that there's also potentially a more intelligent uh, organized structure behind the scenes that is potentially uh, pulling the strings. So John, sure. if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the black budget, I, I believe, you know, safe to say that it exists, that the money that's just not accounted for anywhere in the line items of budgets, it, it obviously is funding a lot of this uh, either top secret classified technology or maybe even secret operations. Question mark is where does that come from? For me, I think, and I don't know if there's really kind of a real established answer here. So it's just more of an opinion that I think for me, the way I view it is the myth is that you've got your government infrastructure here and intelligence agencies and federal arms. And then up here, you've got this maybe small group of people that are shelling out billions, if not uh, you know trillions of dollars into the black budget. And for me, it's a step down. I don't believe that there's that overarching entity or group of people that are calling the shots, but rather I think at the agency level, there likely are those individuals, maybe even the director, maybe somebody closely connected to the director of whatever agency, that when you have a budget, let's say that is like this, that what they do is they pretty much operate here but it leaves them all that headroom and that extra money in that budget to funnel where they need it to, but keep it off the books. How do you do that? Well, your operating costs get ballooned up to fill that gap. So therefore all of your line items are there. Your budgets essentially match up at the end of the day. Congress said, hey, we gave you a trillion dollars. Oh, look, you spent a trillion dollars. Everything looks good. And, and, uh, and that essentially hides the black budget program. Again, that's just more theorizing and speculating, because I don't think that there's a real or right answer, at least accurate anyway, uh, that talks about how the black budget program and, and programs and money actually is spent. 
Fair enough. Yeah. And that uh, actually reminds me of the question also that Dave had about the the handshake deals, how you've got the maybe the uh, private industry. And one of the, uh, well, I just did a presentation on our Generation Z, and we looked at a real life situation in, our, in, the home, in my hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba, that featured the uh, contracting of the Winnipeg police headquarters, where in the actual emails that the judge was reviewing, that he ended up determining that the chief accounting officer of the city of Winnipeg received a $327,000 bribe from the contracting firm to get the deal to build uh, the Winnipeg police headquarters. And it was very interesting because in their email, they basically just talked about having a handshake. And that was like, so very unspoken, very unofficial, but because it was in the email records, which didn't take much researching. This was on CBC. It wasn't like I requested a FOIA. It was simply just on the news. And it's like, oh, wow, here's some real life examples of these entities and players doing these shady things where they didn't think that they would get caught. Um, so yeah, uh, so that, those are pretty much, yeah. So to, to just kind of wrap up, we had a couple of questions from our Patreon group. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of them is, uh, is there anything that you found about ESP free energy or or free energy using crystallography from your FOIA requests? Any information in that realm? Yeah, so ESP, yes. There are documents uh, that I've been able to get through the CIA about uh, ESP and also show that, uh, that there are multiple documents that are being withheld that are classified and exempted from release, so they won't release them. I've gone after them quite a few times over the last if memory serves about eight to 10 years uh, since I had discovered their existence and they admit that they exist, but they're entirely exempt. They won't release the information. Uh, when it comes to like the free energy, I would say, no, I've had requests go out about stuff like that. Um, nothing really ever came out of the requests. And then what was the third one? Uh, crystallography, which is, uh, do you, sorry, do you know what that is? Not off the top of my head. No. Uh, so uh, from what I understand, it's actually studying uh, crystals. So we specifically just interviewed somebody who takes water and then uh, freezes that water after uh, this individual sends intention or consciousness to the water. And the, the crystals of the water molecules, when frozen, take the shape to symbolize the consciousness that you're projecting into the water. It's continuing the work of Dr. Uh, Dr. Emoto from Japan. So we've been we're big into the crystallography world, and and also crystallography can tie into like uh, projections and hologram and crystal technology. Yeah, so just, admittedly, uh, that's all new to me. So I've never done a request on it. Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of of various elements of that. I don't want to say that type of research, but really going away from mainstream science uh, and in in different corners of the government. So I'd be kind of curious to you know, see if maybe there was any, uh, anything on that. I mean, I've found stuff on Curly and photography, uh, the documentation that they've collected, not necessarily a, a research program, but rather they collect intelligence from other governments. So, you know, Curly and photography is pretty interesting too. Curly I don't know what I think about it, but that sounds familiar. Is that like taking pictures of plasma? Yeah, the, the pictures objects? and then you have like the auras around. Uh, oh, and okay. So the Soviets did, uh, the Soviet Union during the Cold War did a lot of research in the, into that. And so, yeah, I'm always interested to see like what the intelligence agencies find worthy to collect and house. So sometimes you might not find actual programs on, on certain things. 
but they go out and they collect information from other governments, bring it back, translate it, and they use that as intelligence. And when they collect that information, that's it's basically open source information, or does one government have to request, do a FOIA request for another government's information? No, in, in, in some cases, it's acquired through sources. Uh, so so they'll, they'll be able to acquire that material. Other is open source, whether they are looking at uh, scientific journals or other types of open source material, they'll bring that in too. So I think it's a combination of, of kind of all of the above. But so for an example of like the five eyes, the, the intelligence mm-hmm. agencies, that, that would be like an open source data sharing and collecting agreement between all five. To your knowledge, well, I kind of translate open source as a little bit different. I mean, if you're talking about open source material like OSINT, like news, like research done by major uh, media outlets, stuff like that, that's collected. The CIA has internal databases where they collect uh, those types of, of intelligence, what they would call intelligence material. Uh, many years ago, it was called the FBIS, the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. And the FBIS was just that, a collection of, of essentially open sourced material from newspapers around the globe that they would bring in. And then when, when analysts or agents or whomever needed to do research, they go into FBIS and they go ahead and put in a keyword and it would spit out all of that open source material. So back to your question, that's how I translate open source. If you're talking about the sharing between the, the five eyes, I wouldn't consider that open source, but rather that that internal agreement for them to share the intelligence, however they gathered it. Mm, okay, sure. Thank you very much for the distinction. Um, so then the other question that we have is from our good uh, friend, Scott, a uh, uh, friend of the show, Scott. Uh, if you could share the top five FOIA polls not regarding UFOs, UAP, USOs. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's a great question. I, I would I would definitely put high on my list uh, documentation I got from the CIA on behavioral modification. Uh, they differed. They, according to the CIA, it differed from mind control. For me, it was the same thing. Uh, what I had uncovered was in the early 1960s, they were implanting chips into the brains of dogs and successfully remote controlling them. And I got the photographs from the experiments I got the diagrams of, of the uh, paths that they were, again, remote controlling. So forward, left, right, left. Uh, so, so it all broke down the success. So it really kind of makes you wonder, you know, what, what, was, what was that all about? Um, another kind of score I got was a declassification of a document that played into the justification for the Iraq war. And that had, uh, although been released in part before, was definitely a, a viral story in the sense that it had uh, never been released in that length before, had revealed new, new details. Uh, it was profiled by Vice News at the time and uh, just, just went viral from there and got, got a lot of worldwide, you know, worldwide uh, coverage for it. Uh, let me see some of the other stuff. There, there's been, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to, Yeah, I know you've had, like t- you said, you've had 10,000, 10,000 requests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, and that's, five, that's a tough one that translates to over 3 million pages. So it's kind of, you know, kind of rough to, to round it down, but um, yeah, there would, there would be a couple the MK ultra stuff. Uh, I was one of the first ones ever to have that on the internet digitized. Uh, a lot of those documents had never been out before. 
uh, and this is going back probably 23 years or so, uh, when when they finally released what they had, most of MK Ultra stuff was destroyed. But there was a stack of material that was accidentally filed away as financial material, and so that was kind of the only surviving material there. Um, I also secured the whole Stargate collection, probably around the same time frame. Uh, that is the entire collection of remote viewing research that the CIA did. And although some of that was was available before, this was a uh, this was a archive of the entire drop. So the CIA eventually put everything on a CD-ROM disc. Uh, we we because I wasn't the only one. We're fighting for years to get them to release all of this information, not only with MK Ultra, but again the Stargate collection. They finally did. The moment I got it, I dumped it all online. And this was before the CIA had their reading room online. And so that was that was a big get as well, because it, it finally gave everyone access to these obscure intelligence programs by the CIA, looking at remote viewing, MKUltra, these mind experiments. And then that paved the way for years later to get the ones on the, the, the brain implants. So I, I think that's four, but that's I four, think that yep. those, are, those are some of the bigger ones. Fair enough. Uh, that's, that is fascinating. And thank you so much for your work. Uh, I want to ask then, uh, have you noticed how, uh, like if the information or online rumors, disinformation, misinformation from the original documents that you got, has there been circumstances where you've been asked a question about content that you've directly been involved with having the information be released? And then it turns out that somebody's asking you something that you're just like, no, 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 that's not at all what happened. How did this like it, it totally contradicts the information that you've got if you've seen in your like real real life about the sort of disinformation and misinformation that's going about. Well, it depends on the topic. I mean, yeah, a misinformation is rampant. And then it opens up the question mark of if a FOIA document comes out and it contradicts the story that's being talked about or bantered about or rumored about, if it contradicts it, do we believe it? What do we believe? Still the rumor? Or now do, does the FOIA produce uh, evidence that you can cite to refute that rumor? So it depends on the, the topic, because in the UFO world, when you're talking about that, if something comes out through FOIA that reinforces UAP or UFOs or that reality, it's considered gold by some involved in this conversation. If it refutes what people want to believe, some people will say the government is lying, they're hoaxing, they're obfuscating, they're falsifying, this, that, and the other thing. So I'm not saying everybody involved in the conversation is like that, but in the UFO conversation as a whole, it becomes very challenging when you come out with something through FOIA that may contradict a, a you know, again, rumor or, or whatever the going story is. And so now then controversy erupts on who do you believe, the government or uh, the rumor mill, you know, and, and which one is right. We know the government lies. I'm the first to admit it. I mean, I wrote books on it, so I know that, that they do. But, the, but when you allege that the government is lying about something, you need to bring receipts. You need to show evidence. And in what ways can you show evidence other than, you know, actual something physical to put in front of somebody? So when you're battling words or a rumor, it, 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 it becomes very, very challenging. You don't see the pushback in other arenas. I mean, you see some, 
but you don't see the same pushback. UFO conversations can get very intense very quickly. So it, it, going back to your question, contradictions are absolutely there. It's whether or not people want to believe it or not. Fair enough. Yeah. And on that note of uh, how the UFO community can be get uh, pretty volatile when you have uh, information that goes against what they kind of want to believe. I really appreciated how you brought up the possibility of a sweetheart deal between yeah. uh, Senator Reid and Robert Bigelow. And you're saying, I know you got, you're saying you got a lot of flack for it, but it was I, very refreshing to just hear you bring that up because you're not, you're not saying that uh, all the information that came about from that arrangement is false or misleading. It just means we have to recognize how that agreement came to be. And that helps us understand more about the big picture with who kind of knows what's going on. Yeah. And, and on the conversation about the handshake deals and stuff like that, that is what I consider one that still goes on today. And I've been contemplating putting all that research together on supporting the sweetheart deal into a video, because in my, in my mind, there is enough evidence to support it was a sweetheart deal. And I think on paper, you had $22 million going over to a private entity that likely was the handshake. Hey, we can do a lot of UFO research, but in order to justify that, call it a mini black budget, if you will, $22 million goes over there. Uh, they said, look, you got to research this. Well, we'll essentially hide it under a aerospace research program. And when you look at the actual documentation, that's exactly what they produced that went over to the DIA. But then when you look at James Lekatsky's book, you see all these other UFO Skinwalker Ranch reports, and they were largely referenced to Bass. So I think that there's a large unwritten part of this story that if $22 million bought those 38 reports, that's problematic because a lot of those reports were pretty much already written. And I created a page outlining every single author and looking into their history and what they've written. And a lot of those papers were already out there, one of which I found, I think, the exact same thing. So were, were we really shoveling hundreds of thousands of dollars to each of these authors to take something that they already written, change a few words, you know, maybe beef up the research a little bit, but is that $22 million? Or was that maybe $1 million? And then all that other money went to some fun paranormal research. Doesn't negate the paranormal research if they found something, but we have to put it into proper context of how all of this came to be and whether or not the DIA even wanted it. So to, to close that thought, I think that the biggest thing that nobody talks about, uh, in my opinion, is the fact that paranormal research on U.S. soil at a ranch in Utah is not in the purview of the DIA. That's not what they do. And it goes back to our part of the conversation talking about the NRO having boots on the ground. That's just not what they do. doesn't mean there aren't other government agencies that do it and that they can work in conjunction with uh, and coordinate with, but that's just not what the DIA does. So I think that that's why it's become so controversial to talk about it, because I think if they really said that OSAP money, part of that $22 million went to paranormal research, then people are going to start looking that direction going, how can you misappropriate those funds? Because I just don't see a justification for the DIA investigating the paranormal and dino beavers on a ranch in Utah. Doesn't mean the dino beavers don't exist. Doesn't mean there's not cool science to be gleaned from it. 
but go to the National Science Foundation, go to go to somewhere else that 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 can do that research and have it make sense and, and maybe even find ways to keep it secret. But the DIA, it didn't make sense. A sweetheart deal that fits. And the, and the puzzle pieces, I think, are showing that. Right on. Uh, amazing. Yes. Yeah, very great. Uh, rational perspective and putting things into context. Um, so I just got one more question and then sure. and then we can wrap it up. But honestly, well, I've got a lot of questions, but <laughs> we can save that for the next time. Hopefully there will be a next time. But this uh, last question is about the the FOIA request that you waited 14 and a half years yeah. to, to get. What, uh, what were you trying to get to the bottom of? You know, it wasn't even anything exciting. It was a World War uh, II era document, uh, I believe on a weapon system. And it, it, again, was not anything that was earth shattering, even when I finally got it, uh, was not anything that blew open the huge conspiracy, but rather it was the fact that you had to wait 14 and a half years for a document to come. And although that is a rarity, it doesn't happen all the time. In the last couple of weeks, I've written some stories, one of which got mainstream media traction uh, in quite a few places around the world about the Obama library, the presidential library that just opened up to Freedom of Information Act requests in January. And what I was able to prove was that they likely have tens of thousands of pages on UFOs and UAP that have never seen the light of day before, because we know that the presidential records are off limits. Uh, I omitted newspaper articles, omitted letters from citizens, and still tens of thousands of pages that uh, are relevant to my request. And it's going to take 16 years by their estimate on getting that material. Who knows if that's accurate or not, uh, but they are throwing those types of figures out. And to make it even worse, I had filed a similar request to the George W. Bush library. And they came back to me and said 20 years for the files that were found two zero. And, you know, I start thinking about that. I don't want to age myself here, but I'll be in my sixties. If that's true, I'll have probably a grandchild at that point, you know, and, and you start to look at that. It's just ludicrous. So sometimes it's less about the document, more about the, the procedure and why it would take that, that amount of time. Yeah. Okay. So I know I said only one more question, but that's really interesting is the procedure and like the hierarchy of these organizations that are reviewing the information. And you, I think you said it was a, an internal uh, internal delegation uh, when they decide what information gets uh, redacted. Um, like, do you have insight? I, it seems like you've probably built up a repertoire with some mm -hmm. of these organizations and, and uh, agents or operatives, whatever the, their term is. So like, what is the actual process? So when you they, they release something to you or don't release it, then you appeal it. Now, does it go to a subcommittee? Does it go to just one individual whose job is to just read through these documents and then check off or cross off? They have something to refer to or yeah, do, what is that process? Sure, so at the FOIA level, when you originally submit the request, uh, depending upon if it's classified and also depends on the agency, it has to go to a cleared person, you know, somebody, if, if you yield a secret document needs to go to somebody with a secret clearance, top secret, so on and so forth. It's then reviewed uh, uh, by that, that particular agency. And then pending, it does not meet the criteria of the nine FOIA exemptions, then it's released. Everything else is redacted and it is cited on what FOIA exemption is applicable to that particular redaction. So sometimes uh, we, we talked about it earlier, but B1 national security, 
B5 internal deliberation, B6 would be like names and phone numbers and essentially per personal information. Uh, the next step is once that's released, if, if, if I feel the need to appeal, in some cases, it will go to the same office as the FOIA, but it is given to what's called the appellate authority. And those are generally in offices that, that are um, above, so to speak, the FOIA office. And they review my case to see what case I put up to fight the redactions or fight the denial. And that appellate authority makes the decision based on my appeal. It can go either way. They say we deny it because we agree with the original decision, or we agree with you, grant the appeal, and then the request remands back to the FOIA office for reprocessing. And I have had wins, great wins, and I've had losses. And so it, it's it's a it's a sometimes a very frustrating process. But again, it when you get something granted. It shows that although the system, I've, I've never, I never call it broken, and I refuse to because I, I don't believe the FOIA system is broken. But it needs, it needs some band aids here and there. You know, it needs some fixing. And the appellate authority, when they grant your request, you realize, hey, you know what? In some of these instances, the, the, the system is working. FOIA office tries to get away with something. Appellate authority says no way. And to give you a very quick prime example, recently, well, a couple months ago, uh, but one of my appeals was to the U.S. Navy who denied each and every request for UFO cases that were sent over to the UAP task force, which included videos and photos. And I was originally denied across the board for national security reasons. They said 100% can't do it. So I appealed. It goes to the appellate authority and the case that I put up uh, was, you can't do this. And again, nutshelling the story, but I put in extensive reasoning on why, and I was granted the appeal. And what that means is, is now the request that was originally denied for UFO cases, uh, including any photos and videos, now remains back to the office. And as you and I are talking, they're reviewing that case again. They cannot come back with the same decision. So now they're in a conundrum. They have to figure out how they're going to deny this again or partially release the information. So that's a, a real world example of how the FOIA process works and an appeal that ended up being a, a success. They're not all that way, but that one was a success. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. It, it, it's like you're a, like a, a lawyer for transparency in a way. And like it's- Try to be. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, amazing, incredible. Uh, here at Generation Z, we are so grateful for your work. Uh, we're so pleased that you've been able to join us and share your time with us today. Um, uh, if you wanted to uh, let our audience know uh, where, they could find you um, at your website, books, any anything that you wanted to share with us? Sure. Yeah. The the best roadmap to where you can find me is theblackvault.com. And there has the links to my social networks. I'm very active on Twitter, uh, also active on Facebook. So whatever your social media is of choice, hopefully you will consider following the Black Vault. And then again, I, I just post things all the time. Uh, so even if you don't use social media, theblackvault.com, you'll see content pretty much near every day. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, John. And uh, we will see everybody very soon. Thank you for tuning in and hope you all have a great day.